I'll be honest and up front with you <laughs> at the start this evening, this is a difficult portion of scripture that we're dealing with uh, tonight. I was saying that to, to some of you this morning. This week in preparation, I have read such phrases uh, in commentaries as follows. Uh, you can maybe get a sense of how my week has been. Uh, one phrase is, Ecclesiastes 7 is the preacher's worst nightmare. Okay, next phrase. Uh, this is one of the most difficult sections in one of the most difficult books in the Bible. Uh, so that's, that's encouraging stuff, isn't it? And maybe you see what uh, some of these commentators are getting at. There are, in that reading, there are some difficult phrases, aren't there? There's some difficult verses. For instance, how did Adrian conclude that? What does verse 28 say? Look at that. Solomon says, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. So that's, we'll get to that a wee bit later on. Let's push that to the side. What does it mean? This is tough stuff. Okay, so say that. Let me say something else though. That it is difficult does not mean it is dry. Just because perhaps tonight we might have to wrestle with some of the material that we've got in this portion of Scripture does not mean this tonight's going to be all about kind of textual variance and it's going to be all about intricacies of language. Not a bit of it. Not at all. In fact, what I think we're going to see tonight is more of the glory and the majesty of the gospel itself. I honestly believe that. I think that what will emerge from what is a difficult portion of Scripture, what will come out of this, are some plain but challenging truths about you. And about me. About man. And our relationship with a holy triune creator. God. That it is difficult does not mean it is dry. So, uh, I'll ask you what I always ask you to do at this moment, and that is to have the Bible open, and uh, to have a section of Scripture open in front of you in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, you'll maybe expect alliteration at this point, and I don't want to let you down. Uh, so there'll be three uh, elements, three points, or three headings that we're going to look at in this next short while. And they're all going to sort of center around a D. Okay? So the first one is this. We see here some directions uh, for godly living. Okay? That's your first D. Some directions for godly living in this portion of Scripture. Okay. There is an apparent unfairness to life. Isn't there? There is for us an apparent paradox to life on earth. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, surely it's the case that today and over the last couple of weeks, there are a lot of people on both sides of the Atlantic. And they are screaming out and calling Donald Trump a wicked man. Now, I am not making any comment whatsoever politically here. Rightly or wrongly, though, there are a multitude of people who are calling Donald Trump a, a bigot, a bully, um, a misogynist. Isn't that right? 
And yet, what has happened to that man? (laughs) He has just been inaugurated to potentially what is the most powerful position in this whole earth. So those people calling out, those critics of Donald Trump, they are confronted with something that you know to be true. And what is that? That very often in this life, the wicked prosper. Isn't that something that's true? Very often as we look around life on this earth, we see that the wicked, evil men, that they are the ones who thrive. Isn't it unfair? Isn't it a paradox? But let's add to that something else. So, the wicked flourish. What is often true of the righteous? Isn't it often true that the good men, righteous people, they very often suffer and they die young? And don't we know that today? With our own... Ian D. Campbell, or with Mike Ovi, and with others, young men, relatively young men who have been taken, who, who have died. Doesn't it seem unfair? The wicked thrive, and the righteous, they perish. Well, here, and what you've got in front of you just now, as Solomon is preaching uh, towards the end of his life, it's to those sort of enigmas that he turns. Now, listen to me. He's not in this portion of Scripture trying to explain to you why those things happen. Other portions of Scripture do that. In this portion of Scripture, Solomon is trying to show you how to respond to these difficulties, these paradoxes, these unfairnesses of life. And and let me say, what Solomon's going to tell you here is remarkable. And I want to deal with it the wrong way round. Okay? So look with me, if you will, at verse 17. Okay, let's look at verse 17 together. How are we supposed to respond uh, to the paradox that the wicked prosper and the righteous perish what do he says to us do not be over what is it verse 17 do not be over wicked <laughs> what does he mean by that don't is he saying it's all right to be a little bit wicked <laughs> but just don't go to town is that it you know don't be over wicked like oh, you can steal some clothes but don't steal a car. Is that is that what he's saying? Don't be. Of course, that's not what he's saying. No, surely what Solomon is doing here is speaking to a temptation that we often have as Christians to excuse the language. The temptation to say stuff this. Isn't that a temptation that we face? Like we look at the wicked in our lives prospering. And we look at your employer who is as mean as he is rich. Or we look at your colleague who is as immoral as she is prosperous, advancing through the ranks. We look at these people. And isn't there a temptation sometimes to say, well, wait a minute, why should I bother with this? 
Like, why should I bother with the Christian life? Why should I bother, you know, all this church attendance and trying to obey God? Why should I bother if ultimately in this life it seems to make no material difference at all? The wicked, they're still prospering. Why should I bother? And what does Solomon say? What does he say? Just because they're wicked, don't you be overly wicked. Just because they're like that, don't you follow suit. You see? So he gives us that direction, but there's another there's another side of the coin. And here we get one of the very, very difficult phrases and verses that I'm talking about. Now, I have uh, said this from the pulpit before, um, but it's a running joke in my family that my mum uh, gives the worst advice <laughs> imaginable, okay? It's a running joke. We always have a lot. I think sometimes she probably plays up to it a wee bit. She's, you know, Andy, I'm going to give you some advice. And you kind of know what's happening. Like the one thing you know when she says that is that you should do the <laughs> you should do the opposite of what she says, you know? And I was reading Ecclesiastes 7 this week, and I was thinking, is a Solomon been in cahoots with, with my mom? Because look at the advice that he gives us here. Look at verse 16. You'll see what I mean. You know, he's saying, in light of the prospering of the wicked, in light, in light of the fact that, that sometimes the righteous suffer, look what he says. He says, do... <laughs> Do not be, look at his advice, do not be overly, don't be over-righteous. And what does he, what does he mean by that? Well, surely Solomon is, is talking there about our natural tendency towards, now listen, our natural tendency towards self-righteousness before God. Isn't that what he's talking about? Now, do, do you see what I mean? Do you know what I'm talking about there? That, I'll say, sinful confidence that we have in our own ability to try and kind of force God's hand to bless us. And I get, uh, let me try and give you some examples of what I'm talking about there. You know, let's say that we see a, a righteous man suffer and perish, not wanting that to happen to ourselves. What do we tend to do? We look at that and sometimes there's a temptation to tend to kind of ramp up our own morality a little bit. We're like, okay, uh, well that's happened to him. Tell you what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that I increase my church attendance. You know, I don't want this sort of stuff to happen to me. I'm gonna dress more smartly to church. I'm gonna be a prayer meeting person. You see? Trying through our own actions to force God to love us more. Trying to force Him, or force His hand to bless us, to love us more. Now, one, Solomon, God's word, is forbidding that here. And two, there is a very important thing you need to hear tonight. Now listen to this. If you are born again, if you're a Christian in here this evening... God cannot love you any more than he does right now in this room just now. Do you see it? He cannot love you any more than he does right now, just now, just in here. Now, how can I say that? Well, 
it's obvious, isn't it? God's love for you is not predicated on what you're wearing. And his love for you in Christ Jesus is, is not predicated on, on how good your witness is. It's not predicated on how much better you are than, than, than the people here. What is it based on? It's based, his love is based on what Christ has done for you. And isn't that a marvelous thought when you think about it? God cannot, he simply cannot love me any more than he does just now. His love is absolutely immeasurable for me just now. Why? Well, not because of anything I do. It's not about my spiritual performance tonight. What is that about? It's about Christ's spiritual performance and what he has done in my place. Now, do you see what that means for this? It means that as Christians, we must react differently to these paradoxes and the enigmas in life. Like if, if we see the wicked prosper, if we see the, the righteous suffer, we don't sort of swing away to antinomianism, like you're following in wickedness, do we? And we don't sort of swing away to dead moralism. What do we do when we see these things? We rest in our God. We take that, that, that really, almost that difficult, narrow path, that middle ground to Christ Jesus. When we see these things happen, what do we do? We respond humbly, we respond biblically, and we trust in the sovereignty of our King, Jesus Christ. So we see here some directions for godly living. Okay, so I said, what did I say? Three Ds. That was it? Three Ds. Now the first one, second D is this. We see here uh, a, a diagnosis of the human heart. A diagnosis of the human heart. Uh, the last two weeks, I've been up and down to Edinburgh a lot. A couple of weeks ago, I was up in Edinburgh for a mysterious in-service training, which was as riveting as it sounds uh, as well. As it is often the case with these things, uh, throughout the week of ministerial training, one verse just kept reappearing. You know how it is, I'm sure, uh, I, I would read uh, in, the, in the morning, I would read a verse, and then it would be used, uh, coincidentally, uh, in a lecture, and then in a sermon, and so forth, okay? This verse kept reappearing, and it's a verse in the book of Jeremiah, I won't test you uh, on it, but it's Jeremiah 79, and it says this, you know it, I'm sure, the heart is deceitful above all things. There's your verse. The human heart, deceitful above all things. You know the verse. Now, nowhere, I think, is that more evident uh, than in man's assessment of his own nature. Do you see what I mean by that? Like if, if we were to talk about the prevailing view of society, about man's nature, what do you think we would hear? If you were to ask your friends and your colleagues about man's nature, what would they say? I think they would say that man is inherently good. 
Man's inherently a, a, a righteous being. Isn't that maybe the prevailing view? Isn't it this, that man comes into the world, a little baby, and, oh, he's perfect, and no, without any corruption, the baby's perfect, and okay, we grow up and we do some silly things in life. Yeah. But, you know, fundamentally, in essence, we're upright, we're good, we're more righteous beings. Question that we've got to answer as Christians is whether that prevailing view of society, is it right or not? And here before us tonight, you have not what I think about this, and you have not just what Solomon thinks about this, and they listen, you have what the creator God thinks about the answer to that question. And I will say this, I think his answer should shake humanity to the core, because in effect, we learn tonight that the prevailing view of society on man's nature is wrong. The man is, in effect, corrupt. Look at verse 20. Isn't that a solemn verse? Isn't that a solemn thing to read? We hear in God's revealed word, there is not a righteous man on earth. (laughs) There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Are you with me? That that's a significant thing to read in the Bible. Let me deal with an objection. How did I start the sermon? I said, this is a difficult portion of Scripture. I said, you know, there's difficult phrases and verses here. Do you see what the objection could be? It could be, well, maybe that's just one of those difficult phrases, man. You know, that the, 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 the man, there's not a righteous man. Well, maybe it's been mistranslated, you know. Maybe it's an anomaly. Like, maybe that verse and that idea is out of kilter with the rest of the Bible. And it's not. Now, think about this. Almighty God, in his revealed word, clearly, consistently, repeatedly, he makes it clear to us. That in his eyes, God's eyes, man is corrupt. He is flawed and he makes it clear that we are destined to face punishment for the wrongdoing. Do you believe me that God makes that clear? First Kings 8. Listen. There is no one who does not sin. Proverbs 20 verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? Who can say, I am clear for sin? Or, listen, most interestingly of all, Romans 3.10. Now I think in Romans 3.10, Paul's got Ecclesiastes 7 open. I think if not, he's certainly had it, he's certainly read it recently. Because what's Romans 3.10? What is it? There is no one righteous. Not even one. Do you see what I'm saying to you tonight? Like this book from beginning to end is screaming out to humanity. God is shouting out and he's 
screaming for us to wake up to the inadequacy, the deficiency of our nature. We are steeped in sin. Now I know pastorally, having gone and met up with you for coffee or been around your house and so forth, I know that many of you really struggle with this. The idea that man isn't perfect as we come into the world. <laughs> I wonder if you see what uh, Solomon does for you. Anticipating our struggles with this, he goes on here to give us the proof. Because look at it, look at it. What is the next subject he turns to in verses 21 and 22? Just look at, look at it with me, verses 21 and 22. So he's saying, man's sinful, what's the next subject? He talks about what? Look at it. The tongue. Now, you need to see that time and time again in the Bible, God points us to our words, to the tongue, as proof of our total depravity. And look at verse 22. Look what he says here. You know, are we good or are we wicked? Solomon says, Does you? no, you're wicked. Don't you know that? Look what he says. You know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Do you see what he's saying? The tongue, your words testify. They're evidence of the proof of your sin. And if that's not good enough, what does Jesus say? Matthew 12. Our Lord speaks about the coming day of judgment. And what does he say to those who are outside of the kingdom of God? By your words, you will be condemned. Do you see it? The reality of our corruption is evidenced in the wickedness of our words. Okay, are you suitably depressed? Are you? Mankind, steeped in sin, are you suitably depressed? You should not be depressed. Not in here. Because what do we know? Like, what has God done? And I thought long and hard about answering that question. I really did. I thought, how will I phrase this? What God has done? I don't need to. All I need to do is read to you the shorter catechism. And I'm telling you this, these are some of the best uninspired words that have ever been written. So if you listen to nothing that I say tonight, just listen to this. So it's a question followed by an answer. So what we're saying, man is steeped in sin. Here's the question, question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? There's a question. Now, what's the answer? Are you ready for the answer? No. <laughs> Here's the answer. God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, what did he do? Elected some to everlasting life. He did enter into a covenant of grace. Why? You ready? To deliver the elect out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them to an estate of salvation by a redeemer. And who's the redeemer? What has been done? 
Friends, God has sent his son into the world to represent us. He sent his son into the world to work for us. What has Christ done? He's lived what sort of life? He's lived a righteous life in our place. He has succeeded where every single person before and after has failed. Christ succeeded. What did he do then? He goes to the cross and he bears in his body the punishment for every single one of our failures. Do you see it? We, by nature corrupt, God, by nature gracious, and providing one in whom, by faith, you and I can be declared pure, righteous, true, good, and holy. Sounds good. But is this just a theory? Is this just one bloke's thoughts in the matter? Is it just theoretical? Two days ago, I I spoke to my friend in ministry who was telling me about a Japanese woman that he'd met. And he said, yeah, really interesting conversation with this Japanese woman. She said to she said to him that all her life, she knew that there was just someone wrong, you know. All her life she knew, she was analysing her motives for why she does something. And she knew, you know, there is something wrong here. But it wasn't until one of her friends shared the gospel with her. And it wasn't until one of her friends actually read God's word, read the Bible of this Japanese woman, that she began to see, whoa. She began to see her predicament before God. She began to see her need for Christ. And is it theoretical? Is it just a theory? A few hours ago in Edinburgh, that Japanese woman in a church in the city uh, was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is not theoretical. That woman is saved. That woman is forgiven. That woman will forever be righteous in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that we are sinful. The good news is that our God, by grace, has done something about it. And all of Jesus Christ... So we see some directions for godly living. We see a diagnosis of the human heart, but we said three D's. Uh, so, lastly, let's note some <laughs> okay, some discoveries about women. Some discoveries about women. Uh, you might have noticed, actually, when Adrian was reading this out, uh, that uh, Solomon uses what I'll maybe call discovery language here. Did you notice that? Like, I think it is, and I didn't count them, but I think it is about eight or nine times. He talks about finding stuff out. I found this out. I found this out as well. So discovery language, about eight or nine times. Now, as we close, uh, I just want to notice what he says about two women. One 
he's found, and the other one, he he can't find anywhere. Okay, so two women. So who are these two women? Look at the first one with me. Verse 26. Here's the first woman. I find uh, more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, the woman whose heart is a trap, the woman whose hands are chains. Who's he talking about? I think if we're going to understand this, this is what we've got to do. We've got to look at this woman through the lens of the rest of what's called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, in the book of Proverbs, we hear two women spoken about, and they are personifications, really. Two women. One is the personification of wisdom. The other one is the personification of, let's say, folly or temptation. Stuff like that. Proverbs, are you following me? Like in Proverbs 1, you've got a woman. She's really representing all that's good. She is portrayed as one who leads people into righteousness and goodness. That's Proverbs 1. What did we read? Who read it? Johnny. What did we read in Proverbs chapter 7? We read of the other woman. Okay, the adulteress. Right, a woman who kind of represents temptation. One who leads people astray, leads people into wickedness. Now, do you see it? See that second woman, Proverbs 7 woman? That's who we're dealing with here. So this is not a person. This is not uh, an individual. This is the embodiment of folly. Representation of foolishness. Now, here's the question. What does Solomon tell you to do with a woman? Look at how verse 26 goes on. What is the godly person to do? What's the word? Verse 26, he says, escape. He says, get out of there. And I tonight want to bring that to you right into your life and your present situation this evening. Listen to me. Is it the case that you are facing genuine temptation? And look, let me go further than that. Given the language here, is it the case in your life just now that you are facing sexual temptation? Are you? Pornography? A problem? Are you Perhaps somebody who is in a relationship that you know in your heart of hearts as a Christian you should not be in? Is there perhaps temptation with somebody at work? Temptation with with one of your friends? What's God saying here? He is saying to you tonight, you flee all of that. And it's, it's escape. You know, just as... Potiphar, do you know the story of, of, of Joseph in, in Genesis? What does he do with Potiphar's wife? There's temptation. What does he do? He, out of there. And that's the same for you if you're in any of those situations. Any sort of sexual temptation. You, you take drastic steps. You don't tolerate it and hope for the best. You flee and you get out of there and you change the situation. 
Therefore, this temptation leads to sin. But there's a second woman, and this is where we begin. We, we end where we began, because I highlighted a verse, didn't I, right at the start of the sermon. So we, I said we'd come back to it later. Well, let's, let's deal with it just as we close. Look at it, verse 28. What can he not find? What's the woman that Solomon cannot find? He says, I have found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. What is that? I mean, it sounds uh, misogynistic, doesn't it? A little bit, at least. I can't find any upright woman anywhere. It sounds misogynistic. But it's not. Because you have to remember who is speaking. And who's speaking. I believe it's Solomon. What do we know about Solomon? And his attitude to women. We know that Solomon did not have a great attitude to women. Here is a man who married thousands of them. Here is a man who was not picky. Here is a man who married many unbelieving women. Women who were corrupt. Women who were determined to lead him away from God. That verse says much more about the speaker than it does about women. And in actual fact, the verse in that section is not about women. It is about showing us our desperate need, isn't it? It's about drumming home that earlier point. Because what has he said? I've been able to find one good man. I've been able to find no good women. And what does he say at the end? How does he end it? He says, God made man upright. But what has happened? Men have gone in search of many schemes. Do you see it's Genesis 3? He's drumming home the fall. He's saying there is no one righteous, not even one. How do we end? How do I end this? I'll end like this. I said at the start, this was difficult, this portion of scripture. I hope and believe that one thing comes out of this. And it is your need for Jesus Christ. And I say that to you if you are a Christian. You need Jesus. You need Jesus tonight. You need Jesus tomorrow. You need Jesus more of Christ in your life. We can't be people who are relying on our own deeds for the Christian walk. We can't be relying on our own self-righteousness to try and get God to love us and bless us. We need Jesus. But, if you are not a Christian listening, if this idea of being born again is alien to you, I have to underline to you tonight, you need Christ. Why? Because he is that one man in a thousand who is righteous. He is the one 
who conceive you from your perilous position before Almighty and Eternal God. He is the one who can provide you not just long life. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who can provide you with life everlasting, life evermore. So I hope it is, I pray that it is tonight, that every single one of us in here, we end the sermon bowing to Jesus. We end praising him. We, we end thanking him for what it what it is that he has done for us, a people who are corrupt and sinful and wicked. We praise God, we praise Christ for his righteousness. Let's pray.